0: Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is the very first episode of Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's brand new podcast, a show where we hammer out the latest in tech law and policy. Each episode will be joined by fellows and friends of the Internet Law and Policy Foundry to talk about the fascinating, important, and occasionally terrifying work that they do and the journey they had to get where they are. Today, we'll be talking about the most important law on the internet with some of the preeminent folks here at the Foundry, inaugural fellow Ali Sternberg and founder Tim Lorden. My name is Emery Roan. I'm a 2017 fellow with the Foundry, a recent graduate of law school, a frequent co-host of that other legal tech podcast, This Week in Law, on the Twit Network, and generally thrilled to be in such great company. Joining us for our discussion today are a cadre of very impressive attorneys doing very impressive things, Joe Jerome, Policy Counsel for the Privacy and Data Project at the Center, of Demo- at the Center for Democracy and Technology, and Panal Shah, a California attorney who recently left the ranks of the Obama administration. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Joe?
1: Certainly. Thanks, Emery. Uh, I'm Super excited to be here. Um, as I said, as Emery said, I work on privacy and data. And what does that mean? It means big data, AI, IoT, GDPR. Uh, I sort of think that I work in the land of tech and privacy law buzzwords. Um, so I have been the creator of multiple failed podcasts, both personal and professional. So, hey, fourth time's a charm. Um, I'm latching on to this effort with the Foundry to sort of spread my pathological fear of Skynet um, and uh, sort of avoid being drowned by limited-edition video game steelbooks.
0: There are worse things. Pinal, what's up?
2: Hello, podcast world. I'm Pinal Shah, an attorney based in the California Bay Area. I'm a graduate of Howard University School of Law. Gotta shout out my institution. I currently consult for the government on bridging the GovTech gap on how the federal sector can tap into innovative startups to bring technology solutions to solve tough government problems. I've got a general love for First and Fourth Amendment questions, social justice, and increasing diversity in tech.
0: Awesome. Very impressive people, and there will be plenty of time for our backstories. We might even do an episode interviewing each of us sometime in the future. But today, we want to talk about the Internet Law and Policy Foundry itself. And to do that, we brought on some of the best people to tell that story, Allie and Tim. Allie is a senior policy counsel at the Computer and Communications Industry Association, or CCIA for our acronym-friendly DC listeners, and one of the most prominent first fellows at the Foundry. Tim Lorden is the executive director of the Internet Education Foundation and a powerful present provocateur of the foundry behind the scenes. Tim Alley, thank you so much for joining us.
1: So, all right, let's let's get going. First and most important question: What is this whole Internet Law and Policy Foundry? Why are we all here? Well,
3: um, yeah, the, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry was um, created as a, a place where early career professionals who were first and foremost passionate about technology um, could achieve some professional development, showcase their talents um, and generally network among their peers. Um, there really wasn't a place for uh, folks. There's no bar association is, uh, or that, that kind of catered to that audience. Um, and frankly, uh, you know, the, the idea that people would come to policy and come to law because they're passionate about the technology was something that my contemporaries saw as really new and exciting. And we really wanted to kind of capture that. So the Foundry is the best and brightest. I think there are over 50 fellows now um, of people in Internet law and Internet policy. And um, they're all rock stars as far as I'm concerned.
0: How long ago did the Foundry get started? This is the third year, right, or the second year?
3: It's essentially probably about the third year. We had some soft launches and there was a lot of drawing board work. It took... um, it took me and um, a fellow named Michael Cumbianda, who's also a fellow, um, at Ali, uh, several several months, probably half a year to kind of get the thing up and running. Um, so it's about, about three years in. We have, um, we have that, well, two different classes of fellows. One, one, the inaugural class of fellows, which Ali is a member, um, will kind of start transitioning out. And um, to, in the 2017 fellows, um, of which Emery and Joe are, um, will, will kind of take over.
1: So, I feel like, isn't Ali something of a literal and figurative rock star? Uh, if she is.
4: <laughs> um, hi, guys. I'm really happy to be a part of the Foundry in general and this podcast, specifically. love podcasts. Um, and I love, yeah, the, the Foundry is really um, important to me, but just to get to the rock star thing real quick, yes, I, I sing, I write songs, and I um, love to be a, try to be a literal rock star in my free time, but... Um, for the tech policy rockstar stuff, I, I got involved with the, from, with the Foundry pretty early on. I, I loved the idea that Tim and Michael had. I had been running this 100-page pu- like public Google Doc of um, <laughs> internet and technology jobs and internships and other opportunities because I, um, I like to, to mentor. I, so I, To set up my law school, too, I went to um, WCL, um, American University's law school here in D.C., and um, I often will meet with uh, current WCL students, recent grads, um, people from all over, and I w- realized that there were so many great jobs that I wanted to to try to give to all these great people I'd met with, and I didn't really have a central repository. I would put them on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, but and I would try to keep in touch with people I'd met with, but I, I finally was like, okay, I, I need something else. So I started this, this Google Doc. Um, I eventually bought the domains of iptechjobs.com and allieslist.org and i started putting things in there and letting people contribute to it and yeah it, it kind of got out of hand um, in a good way people they were just showing how many different types of um, internet and technology and intellectual property privacy telecom all different kinds of, of jobs and opportunities there are and people would tell me that they um, that they got jobs through it which was always so exciting um, but so so tim kind of found me through that and and now this job board that we're talking about is the internet law and policy foundry job board and it continues to to be a great resource for people and i'm, I'm so happy that it's been um, such a successful venture and that people still continue to get great jobs and internships from it so definitely check it out if you haven't
0: you should check it out yourself uh, by going to our website and you should check it out by staying tuned to the end of the episode if you want to hear about some very cool positions that are hiring right now for folks that are in this type of area
1: so can I ask We're you a question? Because I, I loved your job list, and I thought it was incredible, and I can only imagine how much work that was back in the day. When did you start doing that? I mean, was this – I guess this is the, the segue to a question about how you got into tech law, um, but that was a tremendous amount of things. To, uh, it's a huge volunteer effort to put on your shoulders. Um, was this in law school? Was this after law school when you just started, you know, seeing what was out there?
4: I actually happen to know because I I just got the, like – who is reminder that I need to re-register it? So I bought the domain three years ago. Uh, three years ago, like next week, and I think it was it was a public Google Doc for probably about a year before that. So I'd say I'd say maybe just to estimate that um, I started doing it maybe a year out of law school. I graduated law school in 2012, um, and I, I I always took advantage of great mentors while I was in school, both like my awesome professors and and. 2Ls, 3Ls, recent grads, and so I I, um, I definitely knew I wanted to pay it forward, especially as someone who was working in tech policy right out of law school. I wanted to try to help hire WCL students as interns, and which I do all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I knew right away that I wanted to encourage th- these passionate, up-and-coming tech policy rock stars to and help them try to find a way to, to To break into the field and just to show them that there are a lot of opportunities sometimes people say oh it's really hard to work in this field you have to go to a law firm or like you can't do what you're passionate about but um i this has kind of helped shown me that there are so many people early in their career that are doing what they love Um, and so just it's i'm really happy that i can play some small role in helping people like get these really cool opportunities
0: One of my mentors when I was uh, still in law school, um, who happens to also be a Foundry member, she will go unnamed uh, right now, but uh, she pulled me aside one day when we were talking career stuff and she said, Emory, you know, you should know the tech law field is psychotically competitive and you really need to, you know, lean on those mentorships and you really need to make the effort to connect to other people in the area and connect to other people in your field. And so, you know, for me, that's part of why I was so interested in the foundry in the first place is it's, it's such a great way of connecting to other professionals that are in this sort of niche, but rather competitive, uh, not rather, very competitive field of, you know, high tech, uh, you know, complicated legal issues.
4: Yeah, definitely. And I think that the Foundry has um, become a great platform for people creating our own opportunities to to host events, um, to put on panels, to, to submit, to speak at different conferences, which is something that we'll probably talk about later, some other cool upcoming events involving Foundry Fellows. Um, yeah, because um, the, the reason that the Foundry has been such a great resource is that we are we don't have to wait for someone from the top to, to like put out opportunities for us. We can kind of make our own opportunities and create podcasts, um, write blog posts, put on these events and, and help promote each other. Um, one of my other favorite podcasts is called call your girlfriend. And the two hosts have this really cool theory called shine theory. And it's basically like, I don't shine if you don't shine. It's about, um, and it's, it basically says like, surround yourself with, with awesome people, promote them and helps you. It just, um, yeah, it's all about like, I mean, I think that's sort of geared toward promoting awesome women, but just people in general try to, try to uh, pay it forward and, um, create an awesome network of up-and-coming tech policy rock stars in this case. Uh, yeah, and I, and
3: I, should, I should also say, um, in the application process for becoming a Foundry Fellow, one of the, the main requirements is that um, the applicant needs to have a demonstrable passion for technology, and that was one of the main things that the common denominator for all Foundry Fellows is that they have to be passionate about the tech and come to law and or policy because of that. And frankly, would you guys, you know, I'm not an early career uh, uh, professional. I'm actually an you know, older career professional, and when I started working in telecom tech policy as it was described described in the mid-1990s, people really were doing internet policy and they really weren't passionate about it. In fact, most of them were technophobic. Um, Internet policy was something that, you know, if you were in a company or a a group and you got the short end of the stick, you'd have to go do internet policy because it was a backwater, (laughs) nobody cared about it. Um, And because of that, you know, the people that I was working with really just didn't enjoy technology, they were wary of it, and um, they were deeply concerned about it. Um, I think that that yielded some really terrible policy results. And, you know, now I think uh, the great news is that you have this cadre of young professionals who are coming to law and policy because of technology and want to work in this field.
0: Tim, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, Internet Education Foundation? I think that's probably a good segue to the other uh, sort of the parent foundation above the foundry.
3: Yeah. In Internet time, the Internet Education Foundation is really kind of ancient. Um, It's over 20 years old. And it was created um, specifically to be a holding nonprofit for projects. Um, it really doesn't. Its name doesn't evoke any, any branding that you know of. Um, but the projects kind of come and go, and we're designed to kind of incubate projects and then maybe send them on their way. Uh, one of which is the Foundry. Um, the other projects were created under the under the umbrella were the Congressional Internet Caucus, that's one of our projects, State of the Net Conference, that's one of our projects. Um, And just recently in the past five years, we created the Congressional App Challenge, which you may not have heard of, but it's happening in over 217 congressional districts all around the country, where members of Congress host coding challenges, for their students uh, in their district to to win the Congressional Medal of Coding. So we're trying to inspire kids to, to uh, code and pursue STEM careers. So it's really this really uh, small nonprofit that's designed to kind of um, foster an appreciation for the internet as the most powerful medium for commerce, communications, and democracy ever created.
1: So I have a follow-up. So I'm curious what everybody's thoughts are. So whenever I think about Tech law and policy. I think it sort of has two main centers of power, and that's probably Washington D.C. and Silicon Valley. So, one of the things I thought think has been really interesting from speaking to fellow fellows um, is that there's been like a coordinated effort to try and make sure that we that you guys considered applications from people who weren't just in these two hubs. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering if if we all have, or any Ali or Tim, if you guys have thoughts on how you sort of make Awareness of tech law or making sure people are interested in technology in ways that aren't just in these two cities
4: uh yeah so so I would say um, a few things um, first of all, I would say that as, as to echo what Tim said before people are are coming to internet and technology law on their own because they're they're passionate about it they're they're not just kind of falling into it it's sometimes it's avoidable when you hear about things in the news that deal with, with privacy or cybersecurity, with, with net neutrality, with um, Section 230 now, or, or um, often copyright cases in the news that involve the Internet. But yeah, I, one thing I would say is that people, no matter where they go to law school, they're going to be hearing about these, um, these cases in, in the news and in their classes, hopefully. So I would say another, another way to um, promote the, the foundry outside of just um, D.C. and Silicon Valley would be to kind of reach out to, to law schools. We're definitely, at, we're not just, um, the Foundry is not just for for law students and lawyers, but it um, we do, they are like an important part of our um, of our fellows and members. And so it, we've been trying to reach out to recruit from law schools all over, especially as there are so many great uh, law professors and legal experts that are at lots of institutions. Because while there might be a lot of law schools and, DC and and the Bay Area. There's, I mean, there's law schools all over, and people are taking intellectual property classes. They're taking um, internet and cyber law classes. All of these different areas. So it, yeah, we definitely have made a concerted effort to reach out to people, no matter where they're they're, li- um, they're living across the country, and um, and no and matter ex- where they want to work.
0: And it's expensive to live in San Francisco or DC. <laughs> it's it's tough, you know that that is a huge bar.
1: And New York, and all of the super ridiculous places yeah. where all the startups are located.
4: Yeah, I mean, the problem is that's where that might be where a lot of the jobs are. But I do think that there are startups um, all across the country that that can, and small businesses that can rely on these internet services to be based anywhere. They can, yeah, use different social media as, as tools. They can like start a business with eBay, Amazon, just Etsy, all these different kinds of internet platforms that allow people to live all over and um, shipped to products and services to people across the U.S. and, and export um, abroad, too.
3: And Joe- um, uh, uh, Male employers
4: and coders and technologists <laughs> and other policy experts. I don't know.
3: <laughs> Joe, your question also goes to um, the question about, like, we, we wanted to make it geographically diverse in, instead of just Washington, D.C., um, and I think that goes to the, the fact that we took pains to make sure that the foundry from the get-go was as diverse as we could make it. As Ali said, we didn't want to limit it to just lawyers. Um, we wanted to allow other people with different types of degrees to be part of the foundry. Um, we try, it's, we reached out to progressives we reached out to conservatives we reached out to libertarians um we tried to factor in different issue issue disciplines that people were specializing in um, we really tried to make the foundry as diverse on as many different levels as we could and i think that's really what um one of the things i'm most proud of
0: Ali- you're uh, right now Senior Policy Counsel at the Computer and Communications Industry Association. We were talking about just a little bit earlier about the ability of the internet to connect these small businesses and enable small businesses to ship international- er, across the country. Do you want to go into a little bit of background about what the CCIA is?
4: Um, so I, I can say a little bit about CCIA. Um, j- um, CCI is another organization that's been around for, for a bit. We were actually founded in, in 1972, so we've been um, around for more than 40 years. And if we're, a, um, a non nonprofit- There were
1: computers in <laughs>
4: 1972? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so we, we, um, represent, we're a, a, a nonprofit trade association that represents about 25 different internet and technology, uh, member companies. And our, our mission has, we've always been really mission driven, um, since the seventies. And, um, CCI has been about, um, really always been focused on on competition, um, open markets, open systems, open networks. And we work on a lot of different public policy and law areas for um, our member companies. I work a lot on copyright and intermediary liability, but we also, I have great colleagues um, in the Foundry, actually. Um, My my colleague Bajan, who is an inaugural fellow, does our privacy and cybersecurity work. Um, My new colleague, Rachel, is also an inaugural fellow, and she's, she's just started doing our trade work. We do, um, telecom patent reform competition, uh, lots of different areas. And we also have, have an office in Brussels that does, um, EU tech policy work.
0: I know that. um, Yeah.
4: And I've been with CCA. Um, I started as a, as an intern, my, my second summer of law school, and I've just never left. So wow, um, it's, it's been, yeah, this is my whole career. But Ali, you're I, living I, the
0: dream.
1: <laughs> right,
4: I know. I, I know yeah, it created a position for me to keep me. Right, in, but, so yeah. the, I
1: think the the question is always like, what would be some career advice you'd offer people?
4: <laughs> I mean, well, I can. I can, yeah. can we jump
0: back a little first, though? I'd like to They're ask. Both, uh, yeah what about your specific position? I mean, I know that I'm sure a lot of our listeners may have a vague idea of what it means to be senior policy counsel, but I'm sure that plenty more have no idea what being a policy counsel entails. Could you maybe give just a description of what that job is for some of our listeners?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, policy counsel, um, Work for for me. Sorry. So what what um, what I do is I um I fi- I do a lot of legal filings. Basically, being a lawyer is often a lot of writing. Whether you're a policy lawyer or a litigator, transactional lawyer. Um, so for for me, for public for uh, being a policy lawyer means that um, often we'll we'll do amicus briefs. We're kind of so we're going to influence the government across all the branches. Um, when it comes to the judiciary, we do, we do amicus briefs. Um, we filed in the Supreme Court, in appellate courts, occasionally in district courts. Um, and then we'll also do a lot of regulatory filings with different agencies. Um, for me, it's often the Copyright Office or the Patent and Trademark Office or, or the US Trade Representative, um, NTIA, the Department of Commerce. Um, we'll respond to different different requests for comments. And then um, and then the other branch will be will, um, will be the the Hill, and so um, sometimes it involves lobbying or submitting testimony for different hearings. Right now, a lot of our, I don't, uh, a lot right now I've been doing some Hill-related work around um, Section 230, which we might talk about later, of uh, the Communications Decency Act. Um, so yeah, policy council basically means that um, you work on, on different types of public policy and are often telling policymakers across the government what to do, or more often, what not to do.
2: <laughs> I have a question. Well, it was actually a question for Tim with regard to the Internet um, Education Foundation. Um, you know, Your mission statement revolves around education, democracy, and policy relating to the internet. And you mentioned you've been in this field for a while. So um, I'm just curious about some, you know, what major evolutions have you seen since you started working in the field? And maybe this is a broad question, but you know, where do you think we're headed?
3: That's, that's a broad question, and I'll try not to be long-winded. I was, I was fortunate enough while I was in law school to uh, meet a, a staffer for Congressman Ed Maki, who, who was my congressman at the time. And I was able to intern for the congressman and, and came down to Washington to work on the telecom subcommittee um, around 1994. Um, which was kind of the, the dawn of uh, the World Wide Web was just kind of starting up a little bit. Um, uh, businesses started using email a little bit more, and web pages were coming online. And so it was a really exciting time. And, and during that time in 1984, uh, Congressman Naki was creating and writing what he wanted to be the Telecommunications Act of 1994. Um, It didn't work out that way because they they lost the House of Representatives and it became the Telecom Act of 1996. And frankly, that, that piece of legislation was the biggest update to the communications uh p- policy structure um in our country since 1934 it was a huge monumental update and it really only mentioned the internet in one place essentially um which was <laughs> in the the communications decency act portion which was a um which was a an amendment by senator exxon from nebraska um that would have applied the uh content uh and decency standard to the entire world wide web um and it was pretty stunning, and. Um, during that time, I graduated from law school. I came down to Washington and worked for NTIA on on some of the implementing aspects of the of the Telecom Act of '96. Um, the Telecom Act is largely relevant today, um, except for largely um, Section 230 and a few other provisions. But basically, um, the internet has kind of swallowed um, the, the, the telecommunications infrastructure. The issues when I started working on internet issues in 1997 and 1996 um, were basically a few privacy issues, some um, broadband deployment issues, um, and uh, uh, copyright issues, because the, the Digital Millennium and Copyright Act was coming coming along. It's really hard to imagine like how limited the space was. There really wasn't anybody in Washington that actually worked on internet policy. If CCIA had, um, was in town and they were working on, on competition issues, but there really wasn't a lot of people that really cared that much about internet policy. And, you know, I'm, I'm an older person, so um, comparatively... It's really stunning to see how many issues there are now and how vibrant the space is and how people care about the Internet at and it is in its meaning in daily life. Um, one of the one of the issues that CCIA worked on back in the early 1990s was um, encryption. Uh, the Clinton administration put forward Clipper chip. Um, these are back doors to, for law enforcement to get access to encrypted systems. Uh, then they had the key escrow uh, proposal, and then they were saying you can't export um, this you know, level of encryption. Um, it's really amazing at the time, you know, with no no consumers, people in the public had no idea what encryption was and they couldn't see it. Um, today, everybody has encryption on their, their iPhone or their Android phone. They understand what it is. Um, it's really a shocking evolution in how important these issues have become to people's daily lives.
2: Yeah, Tim, I actually, um, you know, I, I agree with you completely. I think tech policy obviously, you know, touches every single aspect of our lives. And um, I think more so now than ever. And um, I was actually just really curious just because I I, I want to know from somebody, you know, from IEF and, and, and like, these are, this is such a prominent issue nowadays. Like, I'm really curious about um, the sort of age of misinformation, um, you know, given people now get, um, more people get their news online than my newspaper. Like, Just, you know, really quickly, like how do we address this issue of either inadvertent or purposeful spread of false information since that was such a big kind of thing this year? How do we kind of attempt that balance between like more access to information than ever before and this use of Internet to sort of propagate misinformation? How do we control that?
3: Um, you can look at it in a couple of different ways, right? And we're learning more and more about the, the Russian advertising, the Russian fake news, um, election news type thing. We're learning more about that literally every day um, in, over the last you know, 17 to uh, 25 days um, that this has been going on and since the election. Um, that said, um, so I'm going to hold off judgment on, on the specifics. I do, I am, I would take a step back and say I'm an optimist when it comes to information. Um, I really did feel like I wanted to get into um, technology policy, meaning information technology policy, um, when I was working for Congressman Maki because I just felt like it was such a democratizing. You know, a powerful medium um, that was coming down the pike. And I really thought that it would it would kind of give people a level set and, and the powerful wouldn't rule. And I don't know if um, <laughs> I don't know if that has come to fruition. I do believe that more information is just better. And um, I think there are some tweaks that have to be done, but I'm generally an optimist about, um, more information sources. I am not um, a journalistic elitist. I do not. I do not um, hearken for the halcyon days of when broadcast journalism and newspaper journalism was at its its um, its its highest level. I, I don't. I don't pine for those days. I really don't. Um, I I think we have a tendency to glorify um, journalism, and print, and broadcast. Um, it probably wasn't as good as we kind of want to remember it was.
1: Hey, So Tim, I, I'd just like to quickly follow up. Um, as someone who you know used to love to be a fan of history and as someone who's been here for a while, uh, it, I almost wonder if this is worth its own show at some point. But I'm just curious if you have thoughts. Of, so if you're interested in getting interested into tech law and policy, I mean, how do you go about finding the history of, I guess, the the, the politics um, and the, 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 the relationships behind the scenes. Because, you know, I think about sort of the insight you can occasionally get into some of the debates in the 90s if you read a book like Crypto, or you try and talk to folks, old timers at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But it seems like, you know, what you're describing in the 90s... That's a completely different universe than what we have today, and just the evolution of that's fascinating to me.
3: No, trust me. There's a lot of old timers like me, um, and even older old timers than me, um, would love to sit around and just talk about the old days. I find like (laughs) I do that too often. It's really I've become that guy. Um, But you know, I do think that there is something that oftentimes we probably should revisit it a little bit more because it's hard to for people um early career professionals like you all to really kind of have that historical context and, and understand how how unique the type right. it is right now. Um, and frankly, you know, I think we were saying Emery was saying earlier is that there it's such a or maybe Joe was saying that it's a, a small universe of people in tech internet policy and internet law. Um, by my, the way I look at it is it's incredibly huge compared to what it was, and it's growing exponentially. And I think you know th- those having those different perspectives, Are really important. That said, I don't plan on going out and creating a new foundry for older career professionals. (laughs) I just don't have it in me. So You,
1: you could at least like let it. I mean, I feel like it's some. It would be a public service to throw out some names and put together like a collection of things that people should read. That's more than just sort of the cases. Uh, but maybe that's a project for another day.
3: No, you know who would be good for that job? I'll, I'll nominate him as Adam Thayer. Adam Thayer would be good. He was He's with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He'd be good at doing that. In fact... Um, Adam was one of those kind of sparks that made me think that there was something new happening when it comes to people coming to internet law and internet policy because of their passion for technology. Adam, Adam basically was saying, you know, I'm having coffee three times a week with young people asking me, how do I get into tech policy or how do I get into tech law? And so he wrote this blog post um, that summarized every every coffee he's ever had. Like, these are the four points I tell people, uh, uh, young people, when they want to get an internet, internet policy. And he wrote a blog post, and he said, I'll still be happy to have coffee with you, but here's what I, what I say to people at, at coffee. And I, I realized that... Um, you know, he, he really, he and I were both having a lot of coffees and it was so exciting to see people like wanting to get into that space. But Adam, Adam reads a lot and he would be a great, um, uh, author of these are the, these are the internet history books you need to read or the white papers that you need to read.
4: Yeah. I mean, we are starting a a foundry book club. Um, so it's great to definitely, um, read about all the, Fascinating history that came before us, in the technology side, on the politics and policy side, um, and but I, I do still think that having those kind of copies, I, I love having them all the time. It's it's like no work for me to sit down and word bomb it about myself, and if it's at all helpful, <laughs> like and so I, I really recommend people sitting down one on one with um, people or setting up phone calls, depending on where you're based, because you can really learn a lot about career advice. Um, from different people's tra- trajectories. Trajectory. Sorry, Panal, I think you were about to say something.
2: No, I was just going to say making that um, information, like I love your your colleague's idea, Tim, of, of kind of just posting it online and making it available. Because for those of us, you know, as we mentioned before, who aren't, um, you know, although I am in the Bay Area um, and I lived in DC previously, for those people who are not in those major bubbles, you know, you don't have those people coming through your town all the time. You don't have access to them. So I think it's really awesome and really helpful to be able to have access to resources like that when you can't just call up someone and have a coffee
0: what i was wondering is if either of you had advice for law students or um, maybe people that aren't quite law students yet that are interested in getting into tech law um, what would you say to a young person that is maybe listening to this show that is interested in all the stuff that we're talking about but is sort of throwing their hands up maybe they don't live in dc or san francisco or maybe they do
4: um, yeah, so so I would uh, reiterate what I just said about trying to, to to talk to different people, hear their stories, learn about their different paths, and just tell as many people, bo- both from what you'll learn from those conversations, and also just so you, you tell as many people as possible that you're looking for, for a job um, or internship, wherever stage of your career or education you might be in, because the more people you, you tell, that they can tell their networks, and if someone hears about something and it gets to you, like... It it really does matter what you know, but in, in a lot of times in the um, in this field, it matters who you know. So it just the, the as much as you can try to play the game and, and network um, and and meet different people. It really helps to just um, maximize the opportunities that you hear about because you only need one job at a time. You know, so it can really seem daunting. But um, I know so many great people in this field that have really um, ha- have that. Are working in this field now, um, and and I do think that um, that peop- that people who are passionate about about internet law and policy, about different different areas of it, and put themselves out there, I really do think that uh, people um, succeed.
3: And I think this is Tim, and I think Ali's absolutely right. The, the networking aspect of it is is crucial. I do believe that you want to go and do it. The most successful people I've seen is have, have done this. I've had internships where they they expand their network of people. Um, and I think one of the things about the Foundry was we wanted to be able to have early career uh, early career. Uh, professionals showcase their talent, whether it be through a podcast, whether it be through a medium post, whether it be um, in other ways, because frankly, at least in internet policy and certainly in, their, in internet law, you know, you, if you're working as an associate at some law firm and the partner doesn't really want to. Get you out and just wants you to be grinding away on briefs all day. No one's going to know who you are if you know mm-hmm. for six years or eight years um, until you might become partner. Same thing, largely in a congressional office or in a you know de- department or agency of the government. Um, no one knows who you are um, if you're if you're like a legislative assistant or a legislative correspondent. It may take years for anyone to know who you are, and I think you need to kind of try to break free of that, um, and, and that's what we kind of created the Foundry to do, is have them sh- network and, and allow them to showcase their talents when people don't, they're not exactly visible to um, people outside. Yeah,
4: and, and to, I, yeah, I definitely agree, people should try to be, um, I always tell people to um, to use the, the, the free tools on the internet, I mean, to go to events, to tweet from them, to share news, to, to follow people. Um, a lot of people in this space are really active on Twitter when, when a new Supreme Court case um, opinion comes out. Everyone's live tweeting it. Everyone's talking about stuff. Um, and, and just try to be part of the conversation and, and know who all the, the players are. And, and if you meet someone, follow up on LinkedIn, follow up by, by email and just try, um, write blog posts on Medium. Um, try, you just take advantage of all the different tools out there to, to share all the things that you have to say and, and to consume and, and learn about the news. And then, yeah, what Tim said, like I think the Foundry is another great, great resource. Um, so people, sh- once we're, we're recruiting again, I would really um, encourage people to get involved in this space because we get, try to give a platform for people to do all of the above, to, to network and to um, meet great people and to create content and just participate in, in this field.
0: Awesome. So we've talked a little bit about CDA two hundred and thirty. Um, you know, part of the show is to discuss the hottest and most important issues in legal tech and in the uh, policy world right now. But for um, so, I'm sure that plenty of our listeners. Uh, could talk already about CDA 230 for a couple of hours. I know that all of our panelists today could, um, but do you want to give a background, I guess, about the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, um, why it's called the most important law on the Internet, and what you guys are, or how it's been playing into both of your works recently?
3: Um, sure, I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to. I, the, the, the CDA... The Communications Decency Act um, is essentially two different amendments um, that were part of the 1996 Telecom Act. Um, one was an amendment by Senator, uh, Senator Exxon of Nebraska. He basically, in, in the days of 1994, 1994, 1995, 19, and then into 1996, he had this big blue binder, and he'd walk around the Senate floor and and bring senators into his office, and he'd say to the other senators, hey, have you seen this World Wide Web thing? Have you seen this internet thing? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, every one of them would shrink their that no, I have not seen that in the internet, because I have no idea what it is. We don't have it in our office. I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, let me show you. And he'd open up his uh, uh, blue binder, and it, it included essentially just printouts of the uh, Naked people, essentially. <laughs> uh, they were just pronounced from the World Wide Web, and he's like, "This is the World Wide Web. Naked people are all over the World Wide Web." And now, this is one of those things that are hard to imagine. Um, there really wasn't ready access to pornography, you know, before the nineteen nineties. Like, you had to go into, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a magazine store, and they would be behind the counter, and they behind a the kind of, you know, brown paper bag. Um, he really didn't have ready access to pornography, so it was kind of a shock to these senators that this this internet thing just was all just had naked people on it um, and he basically said this is what it is so after you know after about it, a year it, and only a, that right <laughs> no he didn't have pitches, he didn't have any pitches of like here's the yahoo list or here's like the social service you know social security administration he didn't have any of those he just, he just had naked people that was all that was there and um it was kind of a one-sided uh you know, educational moment for these senators. Um, but by the end of his time doing this, if you would ask any one of those, you know, 100 senators, um, what is the internet to you? What is the world of And they'd say, you know what? <laughs> it's um, a binder full of naked people. And, we didn't <laughs> have, and I can't believe the government built this. So uh, the, the Communications Decency Act, you know, passes, like, like without any problem whatsoever, because the, the senator's entire experience was... That the internet was embodied in this blue binder. Um, pictures of naked naked people. So, um, and then on the other side of the house, they, they, people, people kind of woke up to this, like the ACLU and the Center for Democracy and Technology um, were starting to, and people for the American Way Foundation realized that the internet was the, the greatest potential platform for freedom of expression ever created, um, dwarfing the, the Gutenberg press. And, and they started fighting back against this and they were trying to convince these congressmen and senators that you know, this is a really bad idea. And that it wasn't, you know, a broadcast medium where the indecency standard, you know, was came from. Um, and they, they tried to convince them that, you know, they, they needed a path. It, basically, at that time, there was a case um, uh, that Prodigy was involved in where there was um, a financial defamation uh, post on one of the Prod- Prodigy forums. And essentially, um, uh, the, the, the case came down against Prodigy for, not, for failing to... Um, uh, filter out uh, that that defamatory material um, from their their site, and they said, you know, it's a user posted it. We we can't be responsible for it. And they said, well, you you do actually try to get pornography off of uh, Prodigy you know, services. So if you can get other things and you can police other app, other content, you certainly could do it for financial defamation. Um, and that that was alarming to a lot of people. So Senator Wyden, then Congressman Cox, and uh, Congressman Wyden. Uh, decided to, to create the what we think of now as Section 230 CDA, um, which was limited liability for um, uh, user-generated content sites um, when, when people post that they're not resp- responsible for the, for the material that they post, and that there was a good starting clause that allowed them to proactively curate uh, their communities' um, uh, different types of content without incurring uh, liability for it. Um, it was supposed to be a, inserted as an amendment to the Exxon bill, um, but they both win it together and eventually, um, when, uh, ACLU and others brought suit, um, and was decided by the Supreme Court in ACLU versus Reno, um, that the Exxon amendment portion of it was stripped out, but they left, uh, the cox widen amendment, um, which was a limited liability Good Samaritan clause.
1: So, Allie, why are you still working on CDA 230 things 20 years later?
4: Good question. Well, um... Yeah, so this law has, has been really um, important and influential. It's really helped to, this limit on liability has really helped so many different internet services grow and thrive. Um, it's something, um, and it's like, to me, one of it's a great Congress success story of, of being so just like ahead of its time and, and knowing that this was going to be an important consideration. There's language in the beginning of 230 about how it's like to promote the continued development of the internet, um, and it was really yeah a, a great uh, a great law from from um, Senator Cox and Representative I'm Senator Wyden and Representative Cox.
3: In the program <laughs> notes, I think someone said, um, you know. <laughs> Uh, people like Ben Wittes and uh, Professor Daniel Citron, who's at the University of Miami uh, Maryland Law School, um, have argued in a paper called um, The Internet Won't Break that uh, 230 has, Section 230 has gone way too far as far as a, a limited liability or uh, clause for the Internet. And it was never meant, uh, Congress never meant it to be so expansive. Um, <laughs> the reality is that um, there are a lot of members you can talk to right now, including now Senator Wyden and former Congressman Chris Cox, um, that say that's exactly what they intended. Um, yeah. so, so the Ben Wittes, um, Professor Citron, uh, article is it's, it, you know, it says that not only it goes way too far and Congress did not intend for it to go this far, but the courts have expanded it radically. And that's one of their arguments. And number two, you know, they say. Um, There's a lot of bad people doing really bad stuff on the Internet, from bullies to sex traffickers to um, gossip sites to, you know, people doing libelous things, revenge porn. And and they just go through a a long list of different things that, you know, they believe should not be allowed um, on the Internet. And uh, they say that intermediaries should be doing more to police it and there there should be either uh, a pullback on the the judicial uh, jurisprudence around this, or Congress needs to kind of limit it. Um, one of those issues happens to be um, sex trafficking uh, on the internet, and which is the subject of the current bill, Cesta. Um, and there, what I does that stand for? I just cannot remember. I think it's. I just cannot remember the acronym, acronym. And the House bill is even more difficult. I can't even think of the acronym. But essentially, it would amend Section Two Thirty.
0: Stop enabling sex traffickers Act
3: excellent um, essentially it would um, hold, and, and here's the thing I mean um, the, I, I don't I don't really uh, there's terrible things that are happening on the internet um, and that but section 230 does not um, uh, you know get in the way of criminal prosecutions um, and Ben Wittis and Professor uh, Citron basically are saying that we should have a variety of exceptions to section 230 because frankly, um, rather than pr- prosecuting individual bad actors, um, it's kind of easier to go after the, the middleman, which is the ISPs hosting the content, um, and, and, and that would kind of um, eradicate uh, this problem from view. And, and, th- and that's kind of the argument. They also say that the internet has grown up. And that it no longer needs the protection of Section Two Thirty. It was created by Congress in their argument um, when the internet was in its cradle. It was nascent and it needed protection. And now these companies like Google and Facebook and you know Reddit—they're huge, multi-billion-dollar companies—and they they don't. The internet no longer needs coddling. And, and um, there's dozens of uh, internet law and policy foundry fellows to defend it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole new cadre of lawyers that can stand up and and defend the internet. And um, the reality though, is that the internet in my view is as, as nascent as it ever was. I mean, um, yes, Google and Facebook are huge and like, who cares? Uh, The reality is that um, it is a platform for new companies, startups to, to start up without actually hiring a team of lawyers before they do that. And, and I think that's the, that, that's a, a faulty part of their argument that the internet is all grown up. It, it really isn't a, a platform is a platform and you really want to see, I want to see go, uh, company, startups compete with Google and compete with Facebook. That's awesome. That's what the internet's about.
0: That is an awesome answer. And uh, I think that <laughs>
4: um, can I do, I'm going to jump in uh, just to say that um, CCIA for, for, for a kind of a two minute exp- explainer version of, of this in-depth history that, that Tim has explained. Um, we have a, great video that we put together at CCI. If you go to ccinet.org slash section 230, um, we have a video that we put together that kind of goes through this, this history um, and has some other blog posts with more information, um, talks about, has some other resources like an infographic and a document about a lot of myths versus facts um, and some, a lot of other, resources um, if you would like to to learn more or have some kind of links to share. But yeah, thank you, Tim, for that really great history and and description of what's going on in the present and why Section 230 remains so important for, for the Internet services of today and tomorrow.
0: Well, thank you guys both for joining us today. Uh, this has been the very first episode of uh, Tech Policy Grind, so we had probably the the best people in the world to tell the story of the foundry, and I think uh, to give us a little background on what's going on with CDA 230 today. Ali, is there uh, anything going on on the CCIA space in 230 world or your world that you'd like to call out for our listeners?
4: Um, I would just... I would just put that plug about um, our, our 230 page, which we're continuing to update with um, new information as they hold more hearings. Um, if you want to just stay up to date, ccinet.org section 230. We try to cr- keep that as a, as a useful resource for, for folks that want to learn more about what's happening.
0: Awesome. Tim, I know that last month you were at the Carving Out Exceptions to Section 230. How will it affect the Internet uh, panel with the advisory committee to the Congressional Internet Caucus? Um, Is there any other uh, events coming up or anything you'd like to shout out to our listeners?
3: Yeah, actually, um, next Friday, um, we have a a congressional briefing uh, in the Rayburn Building, which we will live stream, I believe, on Facebook. Um, It's on hacking. uh, What color is your hat? Looking at uh, vulnerability disclosures and white hack white hat hacking, um, with, uh, with an all-star panel. Um, that's more and more it's coming into law about, um, in the autonomous vehicles legislation in the Senate, um, includes provisions about how to disclose, um, uh, vulnerabilities in, in software and systems. Um, so that's on Friday with, a, with an all-star panel. And then um, a week or two later, we'll have a panel and Rayburn also gonna be live streaming on Facebook um, called data, data, data Analytics and uh, Artificial Intelligence Policy Implications. So we'll be looking at that issue as well. And of course, um, that'll be gearing up for January, which is our state of the net conference, which will be on January 22nd um, here at the museum in Washington. And we actually have um, it's totally free for foundry fellows to attend. And we do have a student um, scholarship so uh, um, students can attend for free as well.
0: Yeah. And just to our students out there, uh, anytime you see available, you know, student discounts or uh, student scholarships or fellowships or passes to get to conferences, that should be your signal to sign up immediately. Because uh, once you graduate, those are no longer available and it becomes rather expensive to go to conferences. So uh, take note.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Those are words to live by.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, uh, Tim, Ali, again, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, Coming up, as I said, oh, and just to be clear, uh, I'm not sure entirely when this episode is going to go out. So the uh, days that Tim was just speaking uh, about—that's Friday, October 13th—that you're going to be having the "What Color Hack?" uh, What color hat are you? uh, Panel Uh, sounds really exciting. I'm definitely going to be checking out the live stream, but. As we close out the show, each episode of the show, we like to highlight some of the upcoming events and uh, recently published work of Foundry members, um, exciting stuff coming up, as well as some Foundry job board highlights. So next week, I'm not sure again when this episode is going to become available, but on October 11th and 12th in Long Beach, California, we'll be having the ABA IP panel, or the IP West uh, conference. And there will be a group of Foundry members, including myself, as well as Gabriella Ziccarelli, um, a whole bunch of really awesome folks talking about uh, navigating the uh, navigating disruptive technologies and the law. So if you're interested in hearing us talk about um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and how it relates to copyright or health tech and privacy or virtual reality and augmented reality, all sorts of really exciting frontier tech, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And we would love to see you there. Tickets are still open and it's going to be at the Hilton Hotel um, in Long Beach. Also starting this week um, on October 11th, uh, Gabriella Ziccarelli and Camille Stewart, two other Foundry fellow members, are starting their own podcast called Hustle Over Entitlement. It's a podcast telling the stories of trailblazers and risk takers, and it launches October 10th. You can find out more at www.hustleoverentitlement.com, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and listen to the intro episode right now. And I know for a fact that uh, Denise Howell, my co-host over on This Week in Law, uh, another awesome person who sort of paved the way uh, into her own niche, is uh, one of the subjects of the first few episodes. So I give it my stamp of approval and I hope that you guys will go and check it out.
1: I'm super excited. I need more and more podcasts to listen to. Um, This is Joe. I'm going to put a self-plug for myself um, because this was an event I was actually willing to pay for until uh, I got asked to participate. Um, But if you're in Washington, D.C. on October 16th or 17th, Digital Eye at Blind Wino um, is going to be this uh, this event from the Goethe Institute. Um, it's pitching itself as this um, interactive event that merges theater, film, and a live game show um, to explore how our digital age is affecting our everyday lives. Um, if you don't want to hear from me, there'll also be privacy experts from Access Now, Epic, and uh, the Georgetown Center for Privacy and Technology.
0: Awesome. All right, and now. <laughs> That sounds very very cool. All right, so for the foundry job board today, I feel like we sort of need eventually we might get some bed music to play underneath this bit, but uh <laughs> The Foundry Job Board today has five very awesome jobs we're going to highlight today. Assistant General Counsel of Global Privacy and Security at Nike, responsible for managing and supporting global legal privacy and security strategies for Nike Incorporated and its affiliates. The Obama Foundation Fellows are looking for a diverse set of community ri- uh, community-minded rising stars. This be organizers, inventors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and more who are altering the civic engagement landscape. Uh, you can uh, apply to be Privacy and Data Protection Council at 23 and Me. So if you're in Mountain View, a fantastic opportunity to help shape privacy, data protection, and information security policies and programs at one of the maybe more controversial and exciting uh, consumer genomics testing companies. And,
1: and let me just say, um, you'd, get, you'd be able to work with Kate Black, uh, who's a former uh, CD tier. Um, she's really awesome. And it's a really cool company that is facing a whole host of incredibly... Um, Tough legal questions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, commercial counsel at general assembly. And if you're on the East coast in New York, you ought to check out the general assembly. They're hiring for general counsel, where you'll be the lead attorney for their rapidly growing enterprise business, handling a wide range of commercial privacy and intellectual property issues. And finally, video game giant electronic arts are hiring as well. EA is looking for experienced practical attorneys in their advertising and in their privacy programs, uh, in the U S reporting to the associate general counsel and chief privacy officer. So those are all some very exciting jobs. Another reason to keep your eyes glued to the uh, Internet Law and Policy Foundry website. You can find that at www.ilpfoundry.us and we encourage you to check that out. Uh, Our blog is going to be updated regularly as well and you'll be able to find uh, past issues of this podcast there as well. Next episode, we're going to be joined by Tiffany Lee on an episode we're entitling right now AI and Algorithms and Justice. I think that you guys might find that interesting if you are interested in any of the things that we tend to talk about today. Joe? Penal, I want to thank you both for joining us on the very first inaugural episode. Uh, To our listeners, you know, the format of this show is a little loosey-goosey. We might be changing it up as the future uh, unfolds, and eventually um, there will probably be a different set of co-hosts, so we might cycle through co-hosts as the show goes on. Um, So I really appreciate you guys being patient with us, us, and I hope that you enjoyed the show.
1: I guess, Um, you you know, if you're out there listening to this, please let us know how we did and give us some feedback.
0: Yeah. We all really appreciate feedback. You can reach us at Twitter. Um, I'm at Emory Roan. Joe?
1: I'm at Joe Jerome.
0: Penal?
2: I'm at Woman of Fuego. That's Spanish for fire.
0: All right. And you can always uh, ping the Internet Law and Policy Foundry as well by going to the ilpfoundry.us slash connect. So if you like the show, I really hope that you give us a rate and review on iTunes. Hopefully it's a five-star rating. And if you don't like it, maybe still review it. But give us an email and let us know uh, how we could do this better. Reach out to us at social media or at The Foundry. And we're super excited to see where this show goes. And uh, we're glad that you're going to be around for this show. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.